Hi everyone, thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast and welcome back to The Cranog. In these monthly episodes, uh, a panel of our podcast team come together to share and discuss stories based on one theme, and this week it's monsters. We've got a whole host of creatures lined up for you this week, so without further ado, we'll start with Graham. So, it's impossible to talk about Scottish monsters and not bring up the big one, the Loch Ness Monster. With more water in Loch Ness than all the lakes in England and Wales put together, it's not much of a stretch to believe that something might be hiding in there. Nessie might seem like a fairly recent phenomenon, or uh, just a tourist trap, but her story's been around for a long time. The earliest recorded sighting was actually in the 6th century, during the time of St Columba. So he was wandering around the highlands, doing his thing, converting pits, when he came across some traumatised locals burying a man on the banks of the River Ness. Seeing an opportunity for some easy converts, he inquired what the matter was. One of their number had just perished after being attacked by some kind of water beast. So St Columba had either a very foolish or a very brave assistant who launched himself into the water for a swim to try and draw the creature out. And the human bait worked, the beast pokes its head out of the water, makes straight for the man. Columba's voice booms out over the water, commanding it to leave the man alone in the name of God as he made the sign of the cross. Vanished under the surface of the water, but of course it wasn't gone forever. So sightings of the Loch Ness Monster picked up again after improvements to the A82 road in the 1930s. Loch Ness is not exactly isolated before, but the new road resulted in the area seeing a load more traffic. More people means more opportunity to spot things, and the first shadowy photographs were taken. So after the sightings hit the headlines, older Nessie stories started coming out of the woodwork. Scotland has a long history with water-based creatures, but when tourists start spotting things that in the good old days might have been called a kelpie or a water bull, they just labelled it a monster. Now, over the last hundred years or so, there have been bloody photographs, eyewitness accounts, even a sonar reading of something deep below the water, keeping pace with a fishing boat for about 800 metres. The description of the Loch Ness Monster it varies with different number of humps, no humps at all. The general consensus is some kind of creature with a large body, flippers, a long neck and a tiny head. Now, apart from the episodes in the 6th century, the monster doesn't seem to mean humans any harm. But Loch Ness isn't the only place with a story like this. Loch Morar is over 80 metres deeper than Loch Ness at 310 metres. And it's got its own monster with its own name, Morag. Rather than a, a neutral monster like Nessie, just swimming around watching, Morag's always been thought of as an omen of death for the surrounding area. So she was often heard wailing in great distress at night, terrifying those who lived near the loch. Similar to Nessie, she's been seen in broad daylight on occasion, but descriptions of her still vary, ranging from something like a mermaid to just a great black, ma- black mass and plenty of shapes in between. Most commonly, she's been described the same way as a typical loch monster. You know, long, thin neck, small head, big body. Large bones were even discovered near the middle of Loch Morar. They caused a stir, but it turned out to be a red deer rather than a water monster. But that just goes to show that Morag clearly likes red meat. Written records of Morag go back as far as 1887, but one of the more famous incidents happened uh, in 1948. A boat and nine people all saw and swore there was some kind of 20-foot-long animal swimming around them in Loch Morar, but they managed to escape from the instant unscathed. 
20 years later, two men were out in a large boat when they felt rather than saw something rise out of the water behind them. So turning around, they stood terrified as this beast faced them for speeding up and bumping straight into the boat. One of them hit at the monster with an oar, trying to scare it off, but that just snapped in half. It wasn't until his companion fired a rifle that Morai took the hit and disappeared. So there are legends of a secret underwater tunnel between Loch Ness, Loch Morar. So maybe Nessie and Morag aren't sisters or cousins, but in fact a very same creature. And when the research boats and Nessie hunters come looking, that's when she disappears off to her holiday home in Loch Morar. So it's hard to know for sure what's hiding in either Loch Ness or Loch Morar. We can be pretty sure that Scotland's two deepest lochs are hiding something. I'm obsessed with the fact that the omen of death is called Morag. I think if you've ever been shouted at by a woman called Morag, <laughs> you'll know. That's so good. I love um, being those. <laughs> of course, despite the extensive mapping of both lakes, you never know. <laughs> but the thing is, they keep finding, they've discovered, I think, Loch Ness is like 10, 15 metres deeper than they thought it was before in one section. Yeah, but like all those Scottish people at it again with their whiskey, they must just be drunk seeing monsters in the lake. I mean, <laughs> that is also possible, because what better place to get drunk than a boat in the middle of Loch? And anything can be a pub. Can we take a poll around the Cranog of uh, Believers in Nessie? Yes, it's unanimous. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually found it really interesting. So I teach English as a foreign language um, as well. And uh, I was doing research for a student who wanted to learn more about Scotland. And I was doing little touristy bits of research that they may not know. Because I didn't really want to be giving them folklore stories in Old Scots when English, <laughs> you know, they're coming to me for English lessons. Like there's just, that's advanced levels. They have to pay so much extra for that. Uh <laughs> But one thing I found out on all the tourist sites were like, were saying, do not say to a person that Nessie does not exist. If you're in Loch Ness, do not fight. Do not say that she doesn't exist. This is very serious. I mean, I suppose your first reaction would be to, you know, whip around and be like, what did you just say to me? I just think it's strange the amount of, um, like the, the people trying to debunk all the stories. I know someone will say, I saw this thing. You know, a very serious person, I saw this thing, walked out in front of me, d- disappeared underwater, and they're like, okay, yeah, no, it's a seal, or no, it's an otter. Like, what? I mean, they, they know what a seal looks like, they know what an otter looks like. You know, it's the fact that you've just got to, you know, come up with any reason to, to debunk these things. Thing is, isn't it so much more fun to think that there is a big monster in there? Like, how much of a killjoy do you have to be to, to turn around and say, oh no, it's obviously an otter? Like... Well, I mean, it's, it's innocent until proven guilty, so it exists until it's proved otherwise. There's a reason that so much of folklore is based around the water. It's a scary place, especially when you're swimming in a loch, having the time of your life, and then you realise that there is, you know, a lot of space between you and the bottom, and you look down and all you can see is black. There are dangerous places, and especially in, like, obviously the last week or two, there's been so many deaths from people swimming in sort of hot weather. It's like they are dangerous places and it's if people don't understand they don't realize loch a loch is not the sea like the sea is dangerous enough but you know generally the beach goes down gradually i was swimming in loch lagan but it was like you know maybe a meter out from where the water started it was two meters down 
you know, it just, the size of locks drops so fast. So, of course, for one of the stories there, it got quite violent, quite dangerous very quickly. But most of what draws people to Nessie, I think, is the whole fact that it is such a mystery. Like, there is absolutely no interaction with people other than a sighting and then she vanishes or she bumps the boat and then she vanishes. Compared to a lot of the other folklore stories we've done where there's always been some act of, like, violence, really. I really like the idea that Nessie's just minding her own business. It would be nice if there was more than one. Like, if it's not, like you are saying, Nessie could be both of the creatures in both ponds, but maybe she's quite lonely. I like to think there's two. One of the, like, anecdote, one of the sightings that I read about, there was three shapes underneath the water. So I think there is more, there's a family of them, which would make sense because if she's been around since the 6th century, she's either very, very old or is the 50th Loch Ness Monster. I was thinking about, is that, um, like, Nephi's, Nephi? Nessie's quite um, benevolent. And then Morag is obviously more violent. It's like, but if they're the same creature, does Nessie just, like, wake up and choose violence and go, okay, well, I'm going to go over to Loch Morar um fight some people get out of the system and then come back <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it's you know like waking up on the wrong side of the bed is waking up on the wrong side of scotland we've got like a jekyll and hyde situation with the loch ness monster exactly yes I've always loved all things spooky and supernatural, so I was really looking forward to this week's episode. Um, I'll be adding to the creepiness and the water monster tales, in a way, um, with the tale of the washerwoman, also called Ben Nia, uh, which is a relative to the Irish Banshee. And also a fun fact, there is a French equivalent. The French equivalent is called Le Levondaire, uh, which roughly translates to the laundry woman. So it's again quite a similar idea. Um, before starting research for this podcast, I'd actually never heard of this t- tale. Um, it was Rebecca who first told me about it and I found it really interesting. There's um, an image that she shared on our kind of group chat when we talk about different stories. Um, and it was a very creepy image. I don't know if we can share it on social media um, alongside this podcast, um, but it really inspired me to look more into this and find out about this story. So the washerwoman is a Scottish spirit and also an omen of death. As the legend goes, the women who die during childbirth can become a washerwoman, and then it becomes their duty to wash the bloodied clothes of those who are due to die next, either of natural causes or due to an unfortunate accident or act of violence. The sightings of these spirits can normally happen near streams or rivers, and their appearance can vary um, all across Scotland, so some are seen as quite fragile, um, and others can be quite grotesque and have a very large front tooth and a single nostril, and others are even said to have webbed feet. Um, The spirits can usually be heard before they're seen, as they're often um, singing or they shriek, much like a banshee, which is said to be the Irish equivalent of a washerwoman and the inspiration for the legend. Um, The woman can also move between worlds, ours and the other world, or other side, kind of the ghostly plane. And she does this by using the currents of the water. However, these are not always evil spirits, and while they can foretell someone's death, they don't cause it. Um, They're more like messengers from the other side. And in fact, in some regions around Scotland, it's said that you can approach and speak to the washerwoman and she'll be able to grant wishes or reveal the future. However, you should never turn your back on her. And if you see her, don't run away. Instead, you should walk behind her. Um, 
because if you cross her path or disrupt her work, it's considered a bad omen and she can attack you. In some areas, such as the Isles of Mull, the washerwoman is almost a comical character. She's said to have very large, sagging breasts, uh, and she would place them over her shoulders so they don't interfere with her work while she's leaning down into the water. <laughs> Bizarrely, and I couldn't believe this when I first read it, if you've spot if you're if a stranger walks by a washerwoman and spots her, he must go over and cup one of her breasts and put it in their mouth like a baby and then claim her to be their foster mother. <laughs> Utterly bizarre and weird and just super uncomfortable. <laughs> so creepy, but the reason you should do this um, is actually to save yourself because this uncomfortable act tricks her into thinking that you're her child and she might spare you. It also traps her and it allows you to ask her um, to grant a wish um, or even to receive knowledge from her. You can ask her any question. Um, the other reason you should do this is also to survey her laundry pile for the clothes of those dear to you, uh, or indeed your own clothes, and avoid an early death by removing them from the pile. Um, moving to the Isle of Skye, a uh, slightly different appearance again of the washerwoman, um, she takes on the form of a more fragile being, um, and again you can capture her, um, and she can reveal secrets and the unknown. Um, she can also tell someone when they will die, and presumably this will also help them avoid their fate. Um, there's a trick here, however, in that any questions that you ask of her, you also must answer her questions truthfully, so you have to be careful what you reveal to her. She's also said to have the power to paralyse people um, who spot her or interrupt her work, so beware and always approach with caution. One popular tale of the power of the washerwoman tells of a lady who is walking by a river and she sees the spirit of a woman washing piles of bloodied clothes at the river. The lady then retreats and slows and shortly after the washerwoman completes her task, the roof of Fern Abbey, which is nearby, is struck by lightning and collapses, killing an estimated 40 to 50 people. And this actually did happen in 1742, and the abbey had to be rebuilt. Another tale of the washerwoman's forewarning uh, was to the members of the MacDonald clan prior to the massacre of Glencoe in 1692. The members heard the washerwoman's screams and hid, thus surviving the slaughter, although 30 members of their clan were still killed for refusing to serve the new monarchy. And lastly, a story about what happens if you annoy a washerwoman or disrupt her work. The story goes that a little girl approached the washerwoman, wrongly assuming it was her mother because she saw her clothes in the river. The spirit became angry and swung a wet rag at the girl, which paralysed all the limbs that it touched. The girl was left unable to walk and later died, fulfilling the prophecy as her clothes had been washed by the washerwoman. What concerned me is that, so, so if, if you grab her, her boob, then you can ask her a question. But how are you going to ask her a question if her boob is in your mouth? Years of practice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, presumably by that point, you've tricked her into thinking that she's your, your mom and she feels maternal towards you and you can then ask her any questions that you want. I don't know how quick this process is. Maybe it's long. Do you get like one question between... <laughs> Mouthfuls. <laughs> Whoever came up with that has got such a dirty mind. It definitely sounds like the sort of thing that like a bunch of guys were in a pub one night and they were like, oh, you know, it'd be really fun. Like they were just adding legs and arms to this like wee story of the washerwomen and they're like, oh, she's got these big breasts and you've got to suckle them. I can, I can literally see like a group of 
old men, right? like one young boy, it's like his 18th birthday, his first night in a pub, and they're all telling him this story. And then I was like, oh yeah, yeah, if you grab her boob. Another one's like, oh yeah, if you do this, you do that. This wee boy, like. <laughs> it suddenly, like the story suddenly went from really, really scary to just ridiculous and comical. Again, like a bit like the, about um, like Nessie. You know, she's just there. She's just doing her thing. She's not actively trying to, trying to get you. Yeah, it's the same. Quite a lot of like Scottish folk creatures. It's like they're there. They've got a job to do. If you just leave them alone, they'll be fine. They're not like they're not inherently good or evil. They just you know they've got both sides of them. They're rounded characters, I suppose you could say. It's like a, like the glass thing. Like she's there looking after cows or whatever she's doing. She's fine if you just leave it alone. It's only when you interact with them that it can either go well or badly. I wonder why um, she's a washerwoman. I'm just thinking of like modern understandings of a banshee would be like a female spirit, but one that turns up and screams and then just kind of goes about her way. Like, uh, I've not heard of one that was a washerwoman until this story. I think it might have come from, I was reading into kind of the, the other world that they talked about that she has a connection to and how water would ferry the souls of the dead to the next life which i suppose maybe is in a way how washing the clothes would then prepare them for the afterlife maybe there's a connection there but um there's quite a few movies where it's like the water will carry the souls of the dead i'm thinking about parts of the caribbean here definitely but um <laughs> it's like carry ferries the souls to their side um through the currents well, I mean, greek mythology i suppose actually you know, you have to cross the uh, river Styx to get to the other side. I was doing a wee bit of reading and there was apparently a kind of an aspect of the Morrigan goddess um, called Bave um, from Ireland and she was a goddess of war and death um, and she took the form of a crow or an old woman and there's apparently a mention of her in the Ulster Cycle where she washes the hero, I don't know what his name is, but he washes. she washes the hero's chariot and harness and that acts as an omen of his impending death. There was another tale that I couldn't find more about it other than women would generally look out for the washerwoman because they were, if their men were out fighting in the war, they didn't want to see her because they would expect that it meant the soldiers wouldn't come back. A sailor preparing to cross the Minch, the strait separating the Highlands from the Hebrides, had much to fear. First, the flat grey water was prone to turn violent and stormy with little warning. Second, the danger of a punctured hull and a sodden crew should the ship catch on one of the rocky outcrops skulking under the surface. Finally, of course, the merman. As you do. Merman is perhaps a misleading title. The blue men of the Minch appeared human in every aspect, except for their pale blue skin and green hair. They usually slept peacefully in their underwater caves, but could be seen spinning and dancing over the foam when the waves were rough. The blue men delight in the chaos of a storm and can even summon them themselves when they're in the mood to play, or for a quick sh ship sinking. It was on one such stormy day when a ship approached a clan of blue men, much to their delight. They rose above the crashing waves, clawing at the hull and howling with the wind. They jeered up at the sailors as the striking white sail thrashed in the gale. 
No fear for the brave skipper, however. He had traveled this strait many times and knew of the blue men's tricks. He was confident in the strength of the hull and the sureness of the keel. Frustrated, the chief of the blue men breached the surface with all the malevolence of the storm above. Flecks of foam peppered his green hair and beard, a mass of seaweed clinging to his scarred skin. His gruff voice echoed even above the groans of the ship and the clash of the thunder. He called out to the skipper. Man of the black cap, what do you say as your proud ship cleaves the brine? The skipper was quick with a retort. My speedy ship takes the shortest way and I'll follow you line by line. Not to be deterred, the chief of the blue men tries once more. My men are eager, my men are ready, to drag you beneath the waves. Never wavering, the skipper responds. My ship is speedy, my ship is steady. If it sank, it would wreck your caves. Even the chief of the blue men could have no power over a skipper with such quick wit and impeccable rhyme. As he and his men retreat, glaring balefully at the vessel, the skipper's men cheer their fearless leader, sailing smoothly onward to shore, a cold drink and a warm meal. Of course, the blue men took down enough ships to garner a fearsome reputation among Scottish sailors. They were not totally monstrous, however. Locals could also show their respect for the swimmers by lighting a candle on the coast come Savin, or could entreat the blue men to deliver fertilising seaweed to the shore by pouring ale into the water. What sticks out to me in this story is the blue men's peculiar way of swimming, torsos sticking out over the water, arms raised, almost like breaching dolphins, as Donald Mackenzie described them in his book. It is extremely difficult to imagine this as graceful in any respect, how did this monster even come about? <laughs> With the classic mermaid, you can see how a sailor, a sleep-deprived one perhaps, might mistake a murky shadow under the water as a beautiful fish woman, but to see a fully grown man's torso peeking above the surface? I found three potential explanations while I was researching. The first offers no real insight to the swimming claiming that the blue men of the Minch are a highly localised representation of treacherous water, another way for sailors to understand how a short journey can go so badly wrong so quickly. The second could be that the blue men were actually maroon slaves taken by Viking pirates or later slave traders. Interestingly, black people in Irish and Scots Gaelic were historically called Dunya Garuma. In context, Garuma refers to a particularly deep blue colour, like dark blue, or yes, even black. The blue men of the Minch in uh, Gaelic is Nafir Garuma. So you can see how perhaps the story of the Dunya Garuma on the outer islands shifted into Nafir Garuma of the Straits. And finally, this is the most fun explanation. There is the idea that the upright, upright torsos of the mermen were in fact people in boats. This could be Vikings traveling in log boats, which looked like long, thin, wooden canoes. Could even date further back to the Picts. The only representation of a Pictish boat that we can see is on St. Orland's Stone, featuring a long canoe with five rowers. But maybe from far away, with poor lighting and before the invention of telescopes, the blue men of the Minch could actually have been groups of woad decorated rowers. I love that, um... We had like the the impromptu rap battle in the middle of that story. Oh right, <laughs> it's so good. 
Uh, it really reminded me of the, okay, this is going to be really nerdy, but um, in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, you can have like rhyming battles with people. <laughs> and it really reminded me of the same. And I kind of wondered, does anyone know, I couldn't find any myself, but does anyone know of any other folklore tales where you get out of it by rhyming? Not rhyming. The only one it made me think of was like the Sphinx. Yeah. Which is just like a battle of wits. But again, it's not really rhyming. Mm. So in, it, it kind of reminds me again of um, flighting. The thing you could do in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, it's real. Uh, it's just rhyming couplets, but you just have to insult the next person with your couplet. Unsurprisingly, big tradition of it in Scotland. Because yes. we just love insulting each other. I don't know, there's lots of stories of people trying to outwit the devil. Not again, not rhyming, but it's uh, you know if you're quick enough to come back with something, that gives you a chance to escape. It is true because um the Nafir Garuma. I'm just quite proud of myself for finding out how to say this, um which I found through a song, and I will add the link to the podcast description so you can listen to it. It's actually really good. But they're one of the chief character uh, characteristics was that they're inhumanly strong. Like you would not beat them with strength alone. Probably reflective of you know the sea or any kind of water you're not going to be able to fight against it so you're gonna to have to think your way out the fact they can hold their torsos up oh yeah <laughs> wild i mean i feel like it was probably more out like a dolphin would breach but i'd also like to imagine them as per- like perpendicular to the water like moving across like someone on a hoverboard that's always the way that i envisaged them in my head is them like like big massive chests like puffed out and like sliding across the water like you know surfing <laughs> i also think like the last bit that you were saying about um you know it could be from far away or the poor lighting uh and we didn't have telescopes at the time i'm just wondering like how many of our folk stories today were just people <laughs> really short-sighted people who thought they saw things that weren't there like speaking as a very short-sighted person there's things that i see that i'm like what is that? And it always looks way bigger than it actually is. And I put my glasses on, I'm like, oh. The thing I always find, like, I love the, the Blue Men. I think they're brilliant. Mainly because they're so localised to, like, one tiny little area. But the, one of the, the stories, like, the founding stories from them is that they are the same as fairies. They're, like, people cast out from heaven. And it's, you know, it's the Aurora Borealis was one group in the in the skies and the fairies were the ones on the land and then the blue men of the minch were in the sea but they're only in one tiny bit of the sea like what's so special about the minch that they never just that's it they just decided to stay I mean I can see almost so I took the ferry from Olapool to Stornoway crossed the minch um, and the first trip there was lovely the water was still it was like looking into a mirror it was fantastic and then on the way back, it was incredibly stormy and it was just such a sudden turn. So I can imagine people traveling there, seeing like both the very beautiful picturesque water and then all of a sudden, like for such a short expanse, like awful, awful. I felt like I was like, I'm like oh, I guess I die here. So sad. Let me get my <laughs> rhyming textbook out. Yes. <laughs> Gotta prepare. Throw it at them. Yeah. <laughs> When you were first describing them, like, the way they look is so creepy as well. It just made me think of, like, people who had been drowned. Because, like, their skin is pale and blue and, like, green hair that maybe had, like, algae and seaweed in it and, ugh. 
Grim. You know, that's probably a connection as well, because if a body washed up on a beach, I think your first reaction would just be, like, after bodies have been in the water for a really long time, they don't look human anymore. Don't ask me how I know this. I can imagine, you know, people seeing something wash up on the shore and being like, that's not a human, that's got to be a blue man, you know? Grown twice the size and blue and covered in green algae. But another great tale as well of people being able to triumph over something really frightening, which are always my favorite folk tales. So my story is a lot more modern and quite short compared to kind of the other tales that we've had, but um, it's one that exists within living memory and it made such an impact um, on the community and it's just so interesting that I had to cover it. So this is the story of the Gorbals vampire. In September 1954 in Gorbals, Glasgow, rumours had spread among the school children of a terrible seven foot tall vampire with iron teeth. Rumour had it that this vampire had kidnapped and murdered two young boys and feasted on their corpses. Despite the adults and the police trying to calm the hysteria, the children decided that action had to be taken to bring this terrible Gorbals vampire to justice. What happened next was truly remarkable. After school, hundreds of children of all ages armed themselves with blades and crosses, stakes and dogs and descended upon the city's southern necropolis to hunt the Gorbals vampire. The children prowled the graveyard as night fell, checking behind trees and headstones for the awful creature that might be lurking. A thick fog rolled in, and in it many shadowy figures were caught by firelight. The children would rush to this silhouette, and then another, as they thought they saw the vampire lurking in the mist. Their hunt continued until the rain started. The children went home, only to come right back the next night, and the night after that. By the third night, their interest was beginning to wane, but the fear of the Gorbals vampire had already set itself in the heart of the community, as the press picked up the story. Hysteria spread throughout Gorbals and soon among the wider population, until a discussion arose surrounding the impacts of American horror comics on young people. Uh, it really is fascinating because the story of the Gorbals vampire is like folklore at its most intense level, because um, folklore is generally defined as stories and traditions passed along from generation to generation, and more often than not they change and they kind of percolate into different aspects of society. But what we see with the Garbles vampire, and this will of course be heightened by the imagination of the children involved, is the idea that's come from something fictional, like maybe from an American comic book, um, but it's evolved through word of mouth and rumour into something that feels real and is, uh, and has a tangible presence in the real world in the form of this mob of children that took to the graveyard despite the fact that there were no records of missing children in the area. It's remarkable and impressive that it got to the stage that it did. Um, it's no surprise that 14-year-old children thought there was something out there, because when you're that age, everything seems magical and exciting. Um, it also wouldn't be surprising if a small group of children had gone in search of the vampire, but it's the fact that the story gripped the school kids so intensely and so widely that led to this phenomenal occurrence of what effectively is a witch hunt in the 1950s. The archetypal vampire that we think of is heavily influenced by Bram Stoker's gothic horror novel Dracula, where we have imagery of Transylvania, powers like shape-shifting and bloodletting, uh, turning other people into vampires, all with the aversion to daylight. Uh, there were a lot of classic vampire movies produced in the 1950s that follow this Count Dracula formula, so we can be fairly certain that this is the type of vampire that the children of Garbles were exposed to and had in mind at the time. 
Um, but many cultures have their own vampire myths. Um, just to digress a little bit, Dracula is pretty tightly tied to Romania, um, while Scotland has its own answer to vampires in the Bavanshi, who were a type of fae most commonly associated with the Highlands, and they took the form of women who seduced travellers with the aim of killing them and drinking their blood. And you can actually hear Graham tell this story on our YouTube page. The subversion of the Bavanshi is also interesting in that typically Dracula and vampires in general are associated with kidnapping beautiful women, and there's almost this kind of sexual element with the uh, sleeping woman and the piercing of the neck. Um, but in Scottish mythology it's the opposite power dynamic. But going back to Garbles, the most interesting aspect of this vampire is probably its iron teeth. Um, there are a couple of older myths from around Glasgow that centre around characters called Jenny with the iron teeth and the Iron Man, um, not the Marvel version, that could have some influence on this part of the vampire. The Garbles area was home to a lot of the steel industry, so it's no wonder that this cultural aspect had inserted itself into the area's folklore. Um, many areas at the time that experienced extreme poverty would liken industrial capitalism to a vampire sucking the life out of communities. So when you give your vampire iron teeth, it becomes quite a poignant message. The hysteria of the Garbles vampire eventually made it to the national press, and from there people blamed American comic books for having caused it. There was actually a 1953 comic called The Vampire with the Iron Teeth that was thought to have triggered the entire episode, but a lot of people have said that given the social conditions around the time, including many families not owning a TV, it's thought that this hypothesis that so many young people in the community could be influenced by American media is a bit of a stretch because they might not have had access to it. Uh, the issue made its way all the way to the House of Commons, which gave us the Children and Young Persons Harmful Publication Act of 1955, which basically banned the sale of repulsive reading material to children, and we still have that law today. So it really is incredible what the power of myth and a few um, kids with overactive imaginations can do. I thought that was really interesting. I can't believe that it's such a recent story like that's there'll be a lot of people that could actually probably come on the podcast and talk about their experiences of that it was not that long ago at all yeah really creepy as well to, to see the amount of like belief behind that so sudden just a sudden turn and all of a sudden like the almost all the population of the town were out hunting a vampire it's hard to say what do you guys think whether it's more or less likely to happen today because i feel like People today are more rational, but, you know, we've all seen people eating Tide Pods and jumping on internet trends. You know, if it went viral on TikTok, do you think? Well, actually, the story really reminded me Slenderman and the belief in Slenderman was potent. People thought he was real. There was stories going around school that, you know, the Slenderman would come and get you and it lived in the woods near wherever you went to school. Um, so I almost think now kids would be more susceptible to believe in things because we have the technology to kind of back it up and to have ghost videos go viral online and then all of a sudden it's like no this thing is very very real there's footage and evidence yeah 100% I think it would definitely sometimes do I mean I remember being at school and things like words just spread so fast when you've got hundreds of kids you know crammed together for eight hours a day or whatever long school lasts like things yeah things spread and that's an excellent example of as soon as it gets in it just goes around a huge city you know and everybody's getting involved totally actually now you've said that it reminds me of when i was in primary school there, there was some horror game that went around where we would sit in a circle 
uh, we'd all shut our eyes, sit in a circle, broad daylight, mind you, and we would, I can't remember, we had to chant something, <laughs> and then you let go of everybody's hands and you fall back. And when you stand up, you check everybody's backs, like you lift up their shirt and you check their back. And people would have scratches. And I remember this one girl had like a witch's hat scratched into her back. And it got to the point where like parents got involved and were like, you need to stop kids from like doing this to each other. But none of us could figure out how people were doing it because we were all in a circle. I think actually, no, you couldn't let go. That was it. You couldn't let go with the person next to you. So you had to hold hands in a circle. So nobody could explain in the 30 seconds that it would take us to like sit back up after we'd fallen back how people had all these scratches and it got to the point of like people be bleeding like it was bad but i think there's something in every sort of school like that that would go around i think if i google any news articles it probably come up because i remember it being quite a big issue at the time so that's probably just the latest iteration is that slender man one i think in every person there's always that one little part of you that thinks you know it might be real and you're just not going to risk that and when you're a kid that one little part of you is 90 percent you don't know anything about what's going on so someone tells you there's a ghost living in your attic you're like well that sounds right now all i'm thinking is imagine you were there to pay your respects to a loved one and you just happened to be like six foot eight with like bad fillings in your teeth or something and the kids see you like that many that many kids (laughs) i find it quite interesting that it became law after like this is folklore has actually influenced law which i don't think we've had before Rasheen, I think you should go first in comparing all of these four stories since you gave us the idea. Probably, I think the thing that pulls all the stories together this week was that all the monsters were just kind of doing their own thing. All kind of neutral. So the blue men and the minch won't attack you unless they feel disrespected in some way. They can be quite kind as well. Same with Nessie and Morag, as he said, and the washerwoman, and then finally the Gorbel's vampire. Could have just been a guy with iron teeth passing through the town. I was just going to say, the thing I like about these stories is that they're all, like, the differences between them all. Like, we've got, like, the Loch Ness Monster, which is, like, an old story, which is just still going on. You've got the Gorbel's vampire, which is, like, a flash in the pan, once and then never heard of again. You know, the Blue Men of the Minch, like, a very localised, you know, like, local folklore. Um, well, the washerwoman, the bean me, however you say it, is all over the place, you know, and it's, I don't, yeah, every single one, it's a bit of a monster, but it's a very different type of monster, different type of story. The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts this week were Graham, Mila, Rasheen and Rebecca, and many thanks again to Lindley for providing the stunning artwork for this week's episode. Next week, you can look forward to another Campfire Tales episode followed by a trip into the Greenwood with Rosie and Cathy the week after that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.